Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. This is our second episode with Scotty Edler. Last time, Jimmy Fennessy and I talked to Scotty a bit about the Black Death and the Spanish Flu, and we started to talk about the parallels between those disease events and the COVID pandemic through which we have all been living for the last couple of years. Today, we're going to talk about the long-term political, social, cultural, and public health consequences of the Black Death and the Spanish Flu, and how we've been wrestling with those consequences lately. We will also use the historical precedents established by the plague and the flu to prognosticate on long-term changes that we might see to our economy, politics, religion, and culture after the COVID pandemic dies down. We recorded these two episodes separately back in the fall of 2021, so some of our ideas have already been proven wrong, but the jury is still out on a lot of our predictions. Let's start talking a little bit about the consequences of the uh, Black Death and what you see as parallels towards uh, COVID in the modern world. So you were talking about how you had a whole bunch of different categories of consequences, uh, long-term consequences. You had you were going to talk about political, social, religious. So uh, let's 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 get into it. Uh, where would you like to start? Great. Um, first, let's start with religious um, because. In the modern world, we've seen a decline in religion over the last 30, 40 years, especially here in the United States. Um, you could make the argument that other than the Catholic regions of the world, that the United States is probably one of the most religious areas um, in, in the world at this point, um, especially with the evangelical movement in the Deep South. Um, so when you look at the Black Death, there was a very big religious decline. Um, and, and most of that was because the clergy during the Black Death was hiding. They were hiding inside their churches and monasteries. And there's a common sense reason for this. The common, you know, the common cause of the, the plague was unknown. Um, you know, we now take for granted that we know what caused the Black Death, the fleas and the and, and, and the bad hygiene and all the things that you could uh, go into that causes uh, disease. But these people didn't understand germs. Um, and so they were terrified to come out of their churches and monasteries and help their people. And for the medieval society in Europe, the church was the center of the universe. It wasn't the king or the queen. It was the pope and it was the bishops and the archbishops. And when the people begin to see that their clergymen, even on the localist of levels, um, is hiding inside their churches and refusing to help them, the people are going to start to begin to question the church. And when they start questioning the church, they're also going to start questioning the authority of the clergy over them. And most importantly, the nature of God himself or herself. Um, when you think about it, um, the Protestant Reformation, which will begin in the 1500s, really could not have happened, at least at the time that it did, without the Black Death, because this is the beginning of the privatization of religion, where people are beginning to question the church. Remember, a lot of people don't think about this today in a world where we can all pick up a Bible and read it. Very few, if any, of these people could read the Bible. You know, 1% or half of 1% of the people in Europe could read in a in-depth, you know, reading level. Um, 
you know, some of them could read barely, but not to the um, scope of reading the Bible and understanding what it said. The clergy, that was their job to read and interpret the, the word of God to the average people. Now the average people who have seen their clergymen basically ignore them during what was to them the end of the world. I mean, we talk about, you hear evangelicals talk about the end times all the time. Um, well, <laughs> nothing compared to then. Yeah. This, <laughs> yes. This was to these people, as I said in the, in the introduction of part one, this was the end of the world to many of these people. They saw it as that. And so, you know, a lot of the, what kept the medieval population in line was really the church. And then this goes hand in hand with the next part of it um, is politics because religion was so involved with politics. Um, when you look at just to, to do politics with religion, um, the nobility did the same thing. Those people who were supposed to be running their countries, they hid inside their castles or their manor houses, their palaces, and basically ignored the situation that was going on outside those walls. And while the people were beginning to question the church and the authority of the clergy, they're also going to begin to question the idea of absolute monarchy. There were no constitutional monarchies here in the 1300s. There were no real democracies like we think of today. Um, and so the political decline is going to be very, very important because of the Black Death. And if we look at today... Not only is have we been in a long period of religious decline, um, I, I would argue that in many ways the religious decline will probably get worse before it gets better because if you look at some of the people who have been hurt the most from COVID-19, um, most of them are people who unfortunately um, have yet, at least right now have have not been vaccinated um many of them are very religious um living in the deep south area and so you are going to see a lot of these more ardent um supporters of religion either die out or become um basically turned off by what they see as the lack of the church's support What's funny is it goes in both ways, too. I don't want to pick on the people who um, don't believe in vaccines um, because you could make the argument in reverse. There are many um, clergy members who are arguing for vaccines and turning off their own flock and them abandoning the church. So when you look at the religious decline, it, it kind of goes both ways. Either the clergy is, is preaching not to get vaccines and their people are either listening to that and getting sick or walking away from the church because they don't agree with it, or the clergy, and, and this is really in the Catholic church, but in, in other even in some evangelical churches as well, they're advocating to get the shot and people are being turned off by that and walking away from their churches because of that. So I, I do see, and, and again, all of this is going to be until we get through another 10, 15, 20 years, it's all going to be hypothetical at this point, but I do see signs of cracks in the religious, um, I guess you'd say the religious absolutism um, that, that has existed for all this time. 
and you, you are seeing a lot more um, privatization of religion. Just look at the fact that uh, many people during COVID-19 took their religion home um, and, and they basically didn't go to church for a year, year and a half. And now that now that the pandemic is, I don't want to say winding down, but in a new phase, a, a more stable phase, maybe um, people aren't, you know, I think some of these people who stayed home and decided to to practice their religion at home maybe have decided you know what, maybe we're going to stay there. So there's really three aspects of this that, that are going to be interesting. Now, just to finish up politics, and then we can kind of, you know, talk about anything there. Um, we've seen political decline it, to go hand in hand re- with the religious decline. Um, in my lifetime, and I, I, I'm not going to out myself, but I will. I was born in 1980. Um, oh, you young my in yeah. my life, I, I don't always feel that young, but in my <laughs> lifetime, if you don't count Jimmy Carter, who was president for literally six months of my life, which I, I'll count him for this. But if if you if you look at my lifetime, there have only been three presidents that failed to win reelection. Carter, when I was, you know, six months old, um, George H.W. Bush in 1992 and then, of course, Donald Trump in 2020. Um, what do all three of them have in common? All three of them have some kind of catastrophic event that went on that 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 you know basically made it so it was impossible to reelect them. But what was Trump's? Trump's catastrophic event was COVID-19. I mean, you can talk about everything that went on during his presidency. Um, and I'm sure we could go a six hour podcast and discuss the pros and cons of Donald Trump, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> lo- maybe, maybe longer. Um, but I, I would argue as, as someone who studies the polls and, and looks at this very uh, closely that Donald Trump's number one, um, reason for losing the 2020 election was COVID-19 and his handling of COVID-19. And um, he's not the only one. You you can name different politicians um, in Europe who have had some kind of issue. Uh, if you look at Boris Johnson, it didn't affect right away. But if, you, you know, making the news right now, Boris Johnson is in big trouble for basically breaking COVID protocols and having parties when, I mean, when the poor queen couldn't even have a family funeral for her. Um, for her husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, um, he was out having Christmas parties and birthday parties at 10 Downing Street. Um, I think that's going to have a political um, price to pay in the United Kingdom. Um, look at Angela Merkel in, in Germany. Um, she has had some issues. Now, again, she's already said prior that she was not going to run for another term. Um, but obviously it's weakened her position. Um, so, so when you look at this, it's making a lot of, especially the Western democracies are, are having some structural issues because of COVID-19 and, and it's mostly in a political decline some way or another. Now, is this a permanent political decline like happened in the 1300s? Starting in the 1300s, you see the crumbling of absolute monarchies. I don't want to suggest that. I do not believe that we're seeing the crumbling of the democratic republic um, or of a liberal constitutional monarchy. But I do see that we are 
seeing some kind of possible reforms or evolution in this. Um, same thing with, you know, I hate to say this, but my home state man, Joe Biden, um, is not having as successful of a presidency as most of us here in Delaware would like to see him have as being the first president from the state of Delaware um, because of COVID-19. So it, it goes, you know, it, it hits equal Democrat and Republican and, and also across the board in Europe that you are seeing maybe not these people hiding inside their castles or manor houses, but they're definitely being affected politically um, by this disease. It, it, yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how dr drastic the, the effect of COVID will be on kind of the lasting democracies in the in the world. <laughs> like you say, we, it, democracies probably aren't going to go away. But at the same time, this is it, they are being shook right now. And so it will be interesting to see what types of reforms have to go into place or end up going into place to try to maintain maintain the system, so to speak, going forward. Uh, because, mm. yeah, the old the old system held, but <laughs> barely <laughs> and it exposed yeah. it. And, and so, it, you know, and it, especially when you start bringing in things like the January 6th insurrection and all of that, you start to see kind of specific ways that the, that the system came close to collapsing and all of that was exacerbated. And it's kind of hard to imagine that would have happened without COVID being yeah. kind of the instigator in all of this. And so, yeah, yeah, it will be interesting to see what kind of long term reforms we see coming out of it because yeah there were some definitely some long-term political changes and you mentioned that uh, you know absolute monarchy started to kind of go on the way out as a result of the black death so what what propped up to replace it well it, it took time obviously i mean this is kind of basically the the genesis of the fall of the um absolute monarchies but when you look at great britain uh, or at this point it's still england um England will see their um, aristocracy take more and more and more power away from the crown to the point that there will be, I'd say, by about 1500, I, I hate to call it a constitutional monarchy because it's really not, but it's more of an upper class constitutional monarchy with a very strong king um, who still has autocratic absolute powers, um, but was limited by things like the Magna Carta and other um, items that were able to rein in his power. So England was basically the first of the, the absolute monarchies to begin to evolve into, by, I'd say, 1680, 1690, with uh, William and Mary, um, you, you really see the beginning of, of a constitutional monarchy, um, same thing you could say if you looked at, um, France, uh, France is going to obviously take until 1789, beginning of the French revolutions, but many of the problems that the French had to deal with in the 16 and 1700s were unresolved issues from the Black Death being, um, workforce issues, um, access to land. Remember, we, we, we tend to forget that almost all these other countries do away with serfdom. Um, after the Black Death, um, and we'll get into that in a minute, but France doesn't. France and Russia are the last two countries to have serfs on a large scale, and it took a revolution um, in France to get rid of basically serfdom, um, and 
if you look at Russia, Russia got rid of serfdom about the same time we got rid of slavery in the 1860s. So, um, and also we want to throw Russia out there. We don't want to talk about them because they really were, for the most part, unaffected in in large numbers by the Black Death because of such a low population. But you still have to mention them with some of these things for comparison's sake. Um, so you begin to see a long period of evolution from absolute monarchy to constitutional monarchy. But just like any other government change, it's going to take a while. You know, everyone thinks that the United States, and I, I don't know why they believe this, but that we got our independence, you know, we declared our independence in 1776, we got our independence in 1783, and then we were a fully functioning democracy. We evolved from Great Britain, which was a constitutional monarchy, um, basically a democratic state. Um, and, and really, if you look at the United States government and how it's set up, it's very similar to the British government. The only difference is, you know, we have an elected president and they have a hereditary king or queen in this case today. Um, our government is set up very similar. Um, you, you could argue that, you know, there's a difference between in the U.S. we're citizens and they're subjects, but that's really just uh, semantics at this point in, in 2022. Um, so this idea that you know, these these government forms just pop up all of a sudden is is in itself ridiculous. I mean, everything evolves. And so you could even make the argument that the modern democratic states started to evolve because of the black death. Now this is a reach, but you'd, you know, you were having, you have absolute monarchies. They're weakened by the black death and then other things in the 1500s that will lead to constitutional monarchies, especially in, in the United Kingdom. And then of course we'll evolve into the democratic States. We think of like the United States and eventually France. Um, although France will have a couple of setbacks in, in the middle of that, um, <laughs> namely with last names of Napoleon. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, going back to the Bourbons for a period of time, but you know, all in all, I mean, these things do evolve and, and change. And so I think with the political decline from the black death, I want to be clear that it's not necessarily a negative decline, um, because it did give us the modern democratic Western Europe. Um, but for those people who were living at the time who had that power, mainly the people that ran around with crowns on their heads and scepters, um, that that political decline was not necessarily a good thing for them. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting comparison of history versus, you know, current events, because, yeah, you're talking about a long term evolution from, you know, the Black Death of the 1340s, 1350s all the way up through, you know, the glorious revolution of the 1680s and then the American revolution, the French revolution in the 1780s, 1790s. Yeah. We're talking a good 350, 450 years of evolution. And so we are, we are definitely in the very early stages. If there is any kind of a big scale transformation yeah. happening now, I mean, we're at the very beginning of it at this point, it very well could play out for a very long time. It's uh, not going to be very, it's, probably not going to be quickly resolved. It'll just, so it may not even happen in my lifetime. Who knows? But uh, it will be future historians will have a cool story to tell about the, the evolution that may have started in around 2020. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because how all these things um, 
there's an interplay of all these forces. Like, uh, and for me, it's hard, you know, coming from a European historian background and then my interest in modern U.S., thinking through the chicken and the egg argument arguments, you know, as you see, I mean, we have the Magna Carta in 1215, and then you have the the Black Death, which exacerbates political instability and religious instability, um, creates all of these economic changes. And then you look to today, and we have COVID, which does exactly the same thing. Um, but over the last decade, there were things politically that lead up to where we are right now. So um, sure erosion of truth and fact or belief in truth and fact, for example, um, increased polarization on, on both sides of the aisle and movement toward opposite poles. So, um, and then you get to something that becomes politicized like a pandemic um, and it drives a wedge even further in between those things. So um, those sides. So it's really, yeah, I, <coughs> yeah, it just, uh, sorry. I just find it fascinating, like how all of these kind of things form a web to come together. Well, and I don't know about, I don't know about the European countries, but I I would probably ask either of you. um, And this is kind of just where my thinking goes when I, when I think of the, of the um, COVID-19 and its effect politically. My thought is, is that maybe here in the United States, maybe this is the event that will finally push the U S over the edge towards some kind of, I hate to call it um, Nash, a, a universal or national, but um, some kind of minimalist, let me say it this way, minimalist healthcare system. And what I mean by minimalist system is very much like the Canadian system. I have a friend from Canada and she's always talking about, you know, what Americans don't understand about Canadian healthcare is that it's not that if you have the money, you can't, you can't or shouldn't go somewhere like the U.S. to get the best possible treatment. There's also good doctors in Canada. It's that they're on the minimal basis. Every single person has access to care um, for free, um, basically through their tax dollars. Um, Here in the United States, we don't have that unless you go to the ER and they'll still send you a bill for the ER when you get out. Um, I don't know if COVID-19 is maybe long term the thing that pushes us towards a maybe a everyone has a certain amount of healthcare for free and then you can always pay for private insurance for, for better care. Um, on top of that, I, I don't think that Americans are ready for universal healthcare. I, I just, I don't think they are. Although um, I think Jimmy, he's in California and aren't they talking about Cal care out there? Um, well, I mean, in San Francisco, everybody has, has healthcare in San Francisco. So. Okay. Yeah. And um, I mean, some some states and cities are doing it, but on a national level, um, that's my that's kind of my question is I, I I just don't know. I think that might be the one major um, the one major political, um, I guess, change that we see out of the Black Death or not the Black Death. COVID-19. It feels like the Black Death. It's been going on, <laughs> I, you know, in another year, it'll have gone on as long as the Black Death. Um, but you know, I just don't know if, if that's going to be the, when we look at that, when we look at this in 20 years, this is the, the change that comes out of it. I don't know. I think if, I think if anything does, this will be it. 
because there's no other, we haven't had a crisis like this before. And who knows if we'll have a crisis like this again. I don't, I don't, I don't think we will. I, I, but I can see coming out of this at some point, and it's probably, I mean, there's always going to be the, you know, kind of conservatives dragging their feet on it. But I do think that, I mean, there was the, the, the path was laid in 2010 with, with uh, the affordable care act. And so I do think that if, at some point in the next few years, it's probably not going to be this year, but I don't know, maybe maybe 2024 or 2026, who knows, if there gets to be a larger Democratic majority in Congress, I can see them pushing something because especially in a couple of years when they're able to look back and see just how devastating this was to our healthcare system, mm-hmm. they'll have a pretty strong argument to make that we need to have a better <laughs> system in place. Yeah. And absolutely, because we're, we're still in the thick of it right now. And so everything is going, we're going from crisis to crisis. And so we're starting to see kind of a general outlines of just how bad the healthcare system was shook by this. And as you know, more as the, you know, the average American age continues to go up, like it has in recent decades, there's going to be more and more attention paid to this kind of thing. And absolutely. So who, you know, it's, it may never happen, but I think if it does, this is the thing that'll, that'll do it because this is the, we've, we've never, you know, since I guess you go back to the Spanish flu, but it wasn't the same. Um, and it didn't, wasn't in the same environment, didn't have the same, I mean, the healthcare system back then didn't have the capability to be much better than it was at the time, whereas it could be much better than it is now. Absolutely. So, so that's, that's my guess. I, you know, I, take that, take it or leave it. <laughs> but that's just, that's kind of where I fall on it is that this would be the thing that would do it if it is going to happen. Yeah. And yeah. for me, not to be, not to be the naysayer or play devil's advocate, but I think the more likely thing that will, that will pave the the pathway to some type of universal health care is something you pointed to Rob, which is the increasing average age of Americans um, from everything that I'm seeing with, with COVID-19 yes, the government is getting involved in sending out free, you know, we've free vaccines for everybody, free tests for everybody. Um, but people aren't taking up, taking up those offers in relation to COVID-19. And in fact, what we're seeing is arguments on the side of people who are doing that and getting vaccinated, that people who refuse to get vaccinated shouldn't even get health treatment. So for me, it's, I don't, I see COVID-19 as continuing to split the sides and not bringing us closer together on anything like universal healthcare or anything really. It's just increasing division. Um, so maybe further down the road with hindsight and if sanity reigns and we, we come back <laughs> to the, you know, come back to some well, type of understanding. Key. Yeah. Or, or that's can find some type of common ground and understanding that, Oh, you know what, like medicine and science actually is important and open access to vaccines, even though, significant portion of the population didn't take us up on that offer is the right way to go because it if we were all in agreement it could have helped a lot of people um but for me i mean not to be a cynic but just looking at the way things have been going and how COVID has divided the country i don't see it uniting us behind universal health care if anything no. i mean we we see people who would support universal health care and who were the first to get vaccines and everything saying, screw those people. They didn't even get vaccinated. They shouldn't get any healthcare. They shouldn't be the ones overrunning 
um, hospital resources at this time. So there's a lack of empathy there that would suggest that they even want to now extend healthcare to everybody if those people aren't willing to engage in the in vaccination. The presentist in me agrees that yeah, the, we're we're yeah. so divided right now. But thinking historically, I'm wondering if you know five, ten years down the road when we're not in the thick of the crisis and people don't have the urgency of the argument for, you know, for mandates, for against mandates, I think the the fire will die down. Um, you know, we forget, Americans are really good at forgetting things. And so in five or 10, five <laughs> or 10 true. years, I, I'm, it'll be curious to see, and I, who knows if I'm right or wrong, but I'm wondering if in five or 10 years, when the urgency of the situation has gone away and nobody's calling for mandates anymore, you won't yeah. have the same people resisting mandates anymore. And once we get into a situation where, you know, a COVID shot is basically part of your flu shot that you take every year. Yeah. I'm wondering at that point, if then we'll be able to have kind of the more detached conversation about just how bad this hit the healthcare system. And I mean, who knows by that point, maybe the urgency to, to maybe nobody will care about the impact on the healthcare system anymore. So who knows? But I, I kind of think that again, if it's yeah. going to happen, I think it's going to happen because of COVID, but a few years down the line, once the urgency is gone. Ah. I mean, you could be right. I, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you and, and by the way, you both could be right in one form or another, um, because, you know, there are some talks um, I, I, you know, and I, I have not really looked into this that, that much, but there are some people, political scientists who have been saying for the last 20 years, um, and this goes back to political decline, that the United States is basically ungovernable in its current form and that it is destined to break apart. And so we could all three of us be right. Um, you know, we could all be in different countries in 10 years. So the United States will have universal health care. I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, the East coast and the West coast might join in some strange, um, confederation. And then the rest of the country in the middle could be, well, God knows what they would be, but, uh, you know, again, this is this is something that 30 years ago you would have thought was not even possible that the United States of America could break up into not just civil war north and south, but multiple different states, multiple countries. But um, I think we can all look at the statistics and look at how we get along with each other and just realize that something something is broken and it's become more broken in the last five years it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And um, it may not be governable. Um, and and just to, you know, to I, I live in a state that's got 900,000 people in it. I'm not advocating for um, getting rid of some of our representation. But at the same time, when you have a state like California, we'll pick on Jimmy for a minute, that has probably 20 times that number of people living in it. And they have the same amount times. of. Yeah, 40 times. Yeah, they have the same amount of senators that we have. And again, the Senate's supposed to be equal. I understand that. Um, but we basically these smaller states, Delaware's more on the side of California. So that's a bad example. But some of these smaller states in the middle of the country who 
has very few people living in them can block any substantive change. You can understand where the decline in the American Union is. Um, you can understand why a state like California would say, uh, and I'm going to quote Bill Maher on this, why do we need two Dakotas? And why do they get four senators right. um, when California gets two? Um, you know, and again, I'm not picking on North and South Dakota. I'm sure they're beautiful states. I've only been to South Dakota. But, um, you know, this country is becoming ungovernable in, in many ways as a union. And you you can't blame that all on COVID-19. But COVID-19 has shown the um, stress fractures that have been under the surface for decades, if not since the Civil War. Yeah, there's a lot of great um, political theory out there now on what that disintegration might look like. And unfortunately, it's not East and West in some confederation versus the middle because of the way that pockets exist around the country. It's more like a very messy paramilitary yeah. Trenches war with oh, the yeah. entire political system disintegrating. And yeah. it's it's a scary thing. And I think conversation and I know we should probably cycle back to our historical conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what's what I find really interesting about the way that we're looking at things politically now and even saying that the US is ungovernable, um, I think it's ungovernable in its current approach. I mean, I've done a lot of learning around, um, you know, change management and how you bring people together and how you identify common problems and, and build, build common solutions together. And that is not the way our political conversation has gone since, well, Mm -mm. since ever, we've always had political divisions, but those divisions have become exacerbated and calcified since 2000. Absolutely. Bush v. Gore really is the that yeah. that's where I consider the delineation line is basically when Bush B, Bush v. Gore and the Supreme Court ruling, uh, basically how the election should go. That's basically the beginning of it. And again, we can't blame that on COVID, but the stress fractures were there. <coughs> and in my opinion, COVID has opened those fractures up. Um, and and you know, and 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 again, that gets back to political decline. How does a how does a, a a pandemic or a plague lead to some kind of political change? We see how it did it during the Black Death. It may not be the same exact thing, but there's definitely some... It, because let's face it, all the changes that came out of the Black Death, they weren't because of the Black Death. There were underlying conditions. It's, it's basically, you know, you hear people talk about, well, you know, no one dies of this. Yeah, there's always comorbidities. You know, a lot of the people, I will say this, a lot of the people who died of COVID-19 did not die of COVID-19. They died of COVID-19 plus this, 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 and this. Um, That's what a COVID comorbidity is. Um, The Black Death did not directly lead to the evolution, just like COVID will not lead to whatever evolution we have, but it is basically what brings all the problems to the surface in a, in a major way. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, to get back to the historical part of it, you know, again, it's always about what's bringing the underlying issues. It's kind of like, I'll give you the world war one example, since that's my area of expertise. Um, 
the the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand did not cause World War One, but it started the war. Um, there were multiple causes of the war, but he his assassination is what started it. The war would have happened eventually in some shape or form. It's just what was the spark to light the powder keg. And in in many ways, that's what the Black Death was for absolutism in Europe in the thirteen in the mid thirteen hundreds. And it's what is going on now with COVID nineteen. So, and I think the uh, the the big factor at play here is that the disease brings brings you know, the outside world into your home Absolutely. because you are, because it's, it's, you're getting, you're, you're getting, you're suffering from disease and the, you can't fix the disease by yourself. You're mm-hmm. relying on the experts to fix it for you. That, and that's Absolutely. the, the authorities in the case yep. of the black death, you're, you're relying on the religious authorities and the political authorities, and they're all failing you. They've been failing for a long time. Long you time. just you just didn't notice and you didn't care because it didn't mm-hmm. affect you because you were out, you know, farming your dirt or <laughs> whatever it is you're doing back then. And or, so or in our not, case, your home instead of at work every day. We are suddenly at home. We're yeah. at, we're at home and our kids are not able to go to school and turns out that a lot of us really like having our kids go to school and yep. suddenly you take you take that away and it's like the world is ending and so Absolutely. you and so the covid is bringing home the systemic problems that have been with us for a long time but a lot of people were able to turn, to tune that out because you Absolutely. know a, a lot of people have the privilege to be able to say I don't need to pay attention to politics it doesn't affect Absolutely. me I'm comfortable in my middle class lifestyle I'm not being affected by um Absolutely. You know, changing legal decisions and all of that. So mm-hmm. I'm able to tune it out, but suddenly I can't tune it out anymore because, yeah, I'm stuck at home. It's My job, I might have just got laid off. My kids are out of start, aren't, can't go to school. People are telling me how to live my life. People are saying that I can't go outside, especially in the early days of the pandemic where people were, you know, you've got yeah. to clean all your mail before it comes inside. You can't, yeah. it, there's yeah. germs on it. And yeah. so it, it brings it brings the reality home in a way that it hadn't before. And it makes the Absolutely. pre-existing problems a lot more obvious to people. Absolutely. Um, now, let's shift focus for a minute. Let's look at the, basically what, and, and this is going to sound, you know, harsh for some people listening, but the positives that come out of all the deaths... Yeah. Now, never, never during a pandemic do you want to talk about the positives of the deaths, but there are multiple, um, and some of them are very important for us. First of all, um, climate change. Um, you know, we think of climate change today and, and man-made climate change as being really bad and, and that the humans are really causing a lot of damage, but what we don't realize is humans have been causing damage since the beginning. It's just the scale that we're causing damage today is obviously with the industrial world so much worse. I mean, you know, we were, since the time we were cavemen, we were causing some kind of um, harm to the climate or harm to the earth. Um, But actually during this period of time, you actually see some healing of the climate because with the the lesser amount of people out farming, Many of those fields began to reforest. And of course, forests, you know, they they take all the nasty things out of the air. They produce something we need, which is oxygen. 
Um, so the, the, the earth actually started for a period of time healing itself a little bit. Now, obviously on a very small scale. Now let's look at, you know, COVID-19 just for a second. Uh, look at India, look at China, um, look at some places here, even in the United States during COVID-19, during the shutdowns, you could actually see the Taj Mahal, um, and not just from a block away, you could see it from a few miles away. Um, I believe I saw somewhere, I, I should have brought the picture up for this, but people were able to see Mount Everest from a place they hadn't been able to see Mount Everest for over a hundred years because of the lack of pollution. Now, it's going to take a lot to clean out China. Um, China's air quality is terrible, but they even saw a 20 to 30% reduction of their air pollution during the lockdowns. So, you know, first of all, in, in, in our case, it was lockdowns. In their case, it was deaths. But the fact that people weren't out moving around and, and tearing up the environment, it shows how quickly the earth can start to heal itself if we allowed it to do what it needs to do. So that's one positive thing um, uh, of the Black Death. The second thing is the reduction of workforce. And this is key because it's, it's basic supply and demand. If the supply goes down and the demand goes up, then what happens to prices? They obviously have to rise. Well, this is what we like to call the transition to capitalism because the nobility and the clergy are now going to have to ask themselves a question. How are we going to farm our fields? How are we going to harvest our crops? Are we going to do it? Well, when the peasantry has been basically wiped out by this disease, you know, the peasant laborers no longer had to know their place. They didn't have to just do what they were told because they could just go somewhere else. So now the peasants can get together in a group and demand higher wages, which, of course, will allow for them to have more buying power. But another um, issue with having a reduction of workforce is also that not there's not going to be enough people to do these jobs even under the best circumstances. So this is going to be the beginning of primitive industrialization. You're going to see them starting to build mills. If you notice when the printing press was really being developed, it comes along shortly after the Black Death. And it's because they needed to help, they needed help in doing these jobs. And so they're going to begin to start thinking about what kind of tools can we create to help alleviate the smaller workforce. And so, you know, you could argue that the industrial revolution that we talk about in the early 1800s in Europe, and then in the later 1800s in the United States, they also get their birth out of the Black Death because of this um, population decline. Um, and also, just in the, the, when you look at population decline just in the personal level, um, this was a catastrophic mortality and many of the most productive members of society were wiped out in this. But one thing to remember is that all of us of European descent are basically descended from someone who survived the Black Death. So when you talk to geneticists, 
they will make the argument that the people who come out of the Black Death were hardier than those who were existing before. Um, you know, it, it killed off a lot of the weaker elements in society. Many of the more sickly people, obviously, just like with COVID-19, if you're already sick or, or have frailties to begin with, if you get another disease on top of it, it could spell disaster for you. But also, more food could be produced for these people. Um, you know, people were just barely getting by before the Black Death. Now more food could be produced than could be consumed, which means people could eat more. But also people could sell off their surplus crops, and they could make money off of that. Um, people could also, if they decided to, cut back their food production and grow other things. So you begin to see more luxury items begin to be produced. More wine on a large scale. More beer on a larger scale. Uh, because, you know, no one's eating barley. Um, but now that you don't have to eat um, your, or basically grow your entire food for the year all summer long, maybe you could just do it in a month or two, you could also transition some of your fields into barley fields or vineyards. And this allowed for people to grow luxury items, to make more money, but also to supplement their own life a little bit. And then finally, the smaller population, again, when we look at the health, again, I said we were hardier, the people who got out of this, and they're going to continue to be hardier because the smaller population meant that you, you can eat more meat and vegetables. Most people in Europe prior to the Black Death, their main source of, of, of a meal, sustenance, was bread. That is what you ate. And you might have a little bit of meat and maybe a little bit of vegetable to supplement your bread. Now, all of a sudden, you're eating more meat, more vegetables, and your grains are basically the supplement. Today, of course, we eat, um, when we go out to eat, we don't order a loaf of bread and then a side of meat and a side of vegetables. They bring us bread for free at the table. Um, and, and when you look at these things in comparison to today, now, obviously, we are in a plague economy, just like they were. The difference is um, we have not lost the population, obviously. You're talking 50% um, in some places, up to 85% in some places in, in the Mediterranean. So we, we have not lost the population to, to suggest that new technologies are going to rise up because of the smaller workforce. But where I will point out is I think that the change, especially when you're looking at the work workforce, is a transition to homework. Now, all of us basically work from home or do most of our work from home. Um, I know I've been a full, basically a full-time online instructor um, since 2014. I haven't been in a classroom since the spring of 2014. Um, I do all of my work online. Um, most of my colleagues thought I was crazy at the colleges I taught at in Texas because they're like, we love being out with the, the students. And I'm like, well, you just don't know. You get up in the morning and you do your own thing. And well, we all went to online in uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Mid 2020 and then through the end of 2020. 
And many of them really liked it. And I was shocked at how many people came back to me and said later on, you know, we thought you were crazy for going totally online and, and doing your thing. But we we can get up in the morning. We can have our cup of coffee. We don't have to, like, rush to get to the office. Um, and it's just not an education. Many offices now are beginning to see a very positive aspect of letting your workers work from home. There's always been this belief in the modern world that if you let people work from home, they're just going to screw around and not work. And what they're finding is, is that people are more productive and they get their work done faster and have more time to themselves when they do it from home. So that might be one of the changes we see come out of COVID-19. Um, I do think that another change that we're going to see out of COVID-19 is I think more department stores and malls are going to go goodbye. I think they're going to go out of business. Sears and Kmart have been struggling for a long time. I don't give Sears another six months to a year before it's totally gone. Um, I thought it was already gone. (laughs) You know, Delaware no longer has any, but there there are some. There's some out there, yeah. Yeah, but but they're a shell of its former self. And I don't believe that this time... I think if you if we did this interview in 2025, if we did a re-interview and listened to it and then kind of did commentary on top of it, I think we would all be talking about how we couldn't believe that it didn't make it another year. Um, I don't believe there's any way that that some places Macy's is struggling. A lot of these big retailers were in trouble to begin with. And now with COVID-19 and malls being shut down for long periods of time. They either did the right thing and transitioned to online, which was already huge before COVID-19 and then exploded. Um, or obviously they go out of business. Same thing with the restaurant industry. So many restaurants where I live here in Delaware, because it's a, a beach resort, um, they did not have takeout or um, delivery. It was, they're on the boardwalk. You walk to the boardwalk, you get your food, you go back to your hotel. Now, every single one of them is either doing takeout or DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever. So I think that, and you know, you hear these these restaurants, and I'll say this about the restaurants in this area. They're all complaining about how no one's going back to work in a restaurant. And I find that to be patently false, that they're, that they're just sitting home doing nothing. Many of the people I know that worked in restaurants no longer work in restaurants, but they're working because... They, when they sat home and were, were basically unemployed, they went and found themselves online jobs like we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if another change that comes out of this is um, that that rest, the restaurant industry has to change their um, hiring practices and maybe has to pay their paying, change their paying practices as well. Maybe this $2.20 an hour plus tips, maybe that's not sustainable when someone can say, forget that I'm going to sit home and work for blank blank online and sit in front of my computer for four hours a day and make twice or three times that money. Yeah, I think that's, I believe that too. And um, for restaurant workers and I'm, and I'm, I'm betting that, you know, curbside pickup wasn't necessarily, I mean, it existed before COVID. Sure. Oh my God. It's probably my favorite 
long-term consequence coming out of COVID is oh, going yeah. to be the continued existence of curbside pickup at at even the you know the retail stores, the restaurants, and all of that. And so, I'm, oh, absolutely. And so, yeah, I think you're right that a lot of restaurants. <laughs> Um, I mean, there still will be a component of people that want to go sit down at a restaurant. Everyone's sure. going to want to do that at some point. But a, I think the curbside is going to continue to be a much larger percentage of, of re, uh, you know, retail and um, restaurant uh, income. I mean, retail online is obviously going to be huge, but the, the curbside thing is kind of a, a game changer. And so that's going to completely re-change. That's going to completely change how people work that do go yeah. to work because they're going to be processing orders online. Uh, the orders will come in online and they mm-hmm. need to fill the orders, take it out to the car. That's a very different dynamic than manning a cash register for eight yep. hours a day or stocking shelves. The shelves very well. I mean, there will be more automation. We've already mm-hmm. seen in, in Ohio here in central Ohio, we have a lot of grocery stores that don't have any, um, yep. per people as cashiers anymore. Yeah. It's all self-checkout. Yep. And so the only employees are the ones that are stocking shelves, but yep. there's even been advances in robot technology that can stock shelves. And if you end up having more of a warehouse type system where you just have someone at the front taking the, filling the orders that come in online, that's a yep. very different business model than what we had before. And, and if you've got everything organized behind the scenes yep. in a warehouse, you don't need the manpower for that. And the, no. and that's, and because, you know, the great resignation and all of that, we mm-hmm. do have people leaving the workforce. But as you say, there's a lot of people that have found other new new ways to live. New people yeah. have new people, you know, entrepreneurship is going up as people are developing online businesses and people working from home for existing businesses. And so I think there will be a very Absolutely. dramatic change in kind of the work uh, in, in the labor force and how people work and where people work. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, one more thing I forgot to mention just was more access to land as well. Um, and and that, you could throw that into any of these categories, but, um, and, and this is one that obviously is not going to pertain to today because, you know, we're, again, we're not seeing that type of die off, but when you look at the, uh, the this the situation here in the 1350s um there were areas where the land was just open where no one owned it at that point because the families that owned it had just completely died out so many of the serfs who were tied to that land became peasants because they no longer had a lord to answer to and you begin to see land redistribution which benefits the poorest and so this is the beginning of the process for the abolition uh, the abolition of serfdom which many historians believe is the primary the, the single most important economic and social aspect of the black death because this is really where serfdom exists and serfdom is mainly on continental uh, Europe you do not see serfdom in um, the United Kingdom um, but France the Germanies, places like that, um, Russia, you know, serfdom will begin to decline. Now, again, Russia takes until I think it's 1868 or 1866, um, and France takes until the French Revolution. But um, many of these other countries, they start seeing serfdom just die out naturally. And, And unfortunately, that was one of the arguments that some of our founding fathers had for 
just letting slavery die out um, naturally was because serfdom had done it in Europe naturally. Um, but more access to land was a very positive thing because it did allow people who previously were tied to the land and had no ownership of the land to to now own the land. And, it, and then we go back to they can decide what they grow on that land. They can decide what they do with it. Um, and they, they make the money off of it. Um, one aspect, though, of the Black Death that's really interesting is the fear. Um, now the Europeans are going to be very fearful of outsiders. They're terrified of those um, that are not within, you know, the, the, the confines of what we consider to be European civilization. They recognize that this came from Asia. Now, they don't know how, they don't know why, but they know it came from Asia. So they're going to begin to start questioning their entire trade practices. Now, again, we're here in the middle of the 1350s. The Crusades have already happened. They've already been reintroduced to all the goodies that they basically denied themselves from about 500 to 1000, 1100 AD spices and soap and all the things that they just didn't want after the Roman Empire fell, they now have it again because of the Crusades. And they want these things. And they're coming across the Spice Road. Um, then, of course, they're being you know dispersed by the Italian um, city-states and their, their um, merchants. Well, now the question is, do we want to get those things from that trade route? And also... Maybe we should cut out the Italian middlemen because it was their ships that were spreading this disease. And so you actually begin to see these European countries start to look at the possibility of a direct trade route to Asia. And one of the first of them is, of course, in the 14-teens in the and the 1420s, the Portuguese begin doing this. And by, I think it's 1488, um the Portuguese have found a water route to Asia. That is, of course, the water route around Africa. Um, obviously, the most important of these, um, if we're looking at us, the most important of these is, of course, um, the the Spanish and and their explorations. Because where do they find? They find us. Um, they, you know, uh, Columbus. Columbus's voyages would have never looked good to the king and queen of Spain. Um, if it hadn't been for getting the goodies from the Spice Islands, that was always the goal, not obviously finding the new world, but it was to find all the goodies of Asia. And so you can basically argue that one of the most important uh, aspects of the um, Black Death is, of course, the Columbian Exchange or the voyages of Christopher Columbus. Um also, if you just want to look at it from a purely cultural standpoint, um, if if you're going to give the Black Death credit for the voyages of the Portuguese in the early 1400s, which evolved to the Spanish uh, voyages and the English voyages, you also have to credit them somewhat, uh, credit it somewhat with the Renaissance, because when Europe is at its lowest, and it's at its lowest here in the late 1300s. Of course, in the early 1400s in Italy, you see the rebirth of European society and philosophy and art um, due to the Renaissance. So, which which I 
I personally think is one of the more important cultural aspects um, of the Black Death, although I would argue that, yes, the the Columbian Exchange is probably more important day to day, but just for the imaginative ability, because I, I think you could go again, chicken and the egg. Um, if the Black Death caused the Renaissance, the Renaissance also influenced um, the 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 European exploration movement. So you could argue that even though the Black Death probably caused both or, or helped influence both, that the Renaissance also helped influence the Colombian voyages and the Portuguese voyages and all those. So um, just because of the imaginative ability. Um, and again, you know, most of these people were just, you know, I hate to attack these people because it's 1350. We all had ancestors living at that time. You hate to go back in time and tell them that they're cavemen or that they they were <laughs> not sophisticated people. But, you know, in the 1300s, Europe living in Europe was a tough place. It was it was not a great place to live if you didn't have money. Um, and many of these people were just trying to survive. They weren't sitting around thinking about art and literature and sculpture and philosophy and you know, they were thinking about religion and death. How am I going to, how am I going to get through the next week of my life? Um, so the black death had, had a lot of very important, um, cultural aspects when it comes to the modern world. Um, a lot of people, and, and I think this is a great point when they talk about the, the, the middle ages, that basically the middle ages were like a computer that was frozen. And you know what you do with a computer that's frozen? You unplug it and plug it back in. And the Black Death was basically unplugging the plug and plugging <laughs> it back in. Now, again, that sounds terrible when we talk because these people were our ancestors, obviously. We at least had a few ancestors there. But it's true. I mean, society was basically stalled. It was stuck. And, you know, the Black Death was one of those events. It was basically like pulling the plug and plugging it back in and seeing if it would um, reset itself. The Black Death was the universal help desk of 1347. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. The Nintendo cartridge you need to pull out and blow on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Boy, those were the days. <laughs> yeah. And then the just the last part of cultural uh, social aspect is obviously psychological. Um, the Black Death had major long-term repercussions that we don't even think about um when it comes to cultural like what we what we think of as art and and what we watch the black death left this imagination of death people obviously after the black death were were basically obsessed with it they were obsessed I mean, think of the scope of the death that they saw. I mean, we've seen the the pictures of the the pits with the bodies in them and bodies piled, you know, as high as a building. Um, not you know, at that time, you begin to see it in the art, um, the dance macabre um, phase of art or the dance of death. Um, a lot of their art begins to become very dark. Um, and, and you could argue that later on Gothic art took a, um, the later Gothic art took this to a new level. 
but also just look at what we like today. Um, the early, the early 20th century, the early 1900s, some of the earliest films were what horror films, um, Dracula, um, of course, in the fifties and sixties, you, you begin to see the zombie phase, um, which has continued on in earnest through the walking dead and fear the walking dead. Some of the most popular TV shows, you know, that have ever, um, been on TV and, and you look at it and you're like, why are we so obsessed with dead and, and Dracula vampires? They're dead that it come back to life and zombies are dead, dead that come back to life, but not as charismatic as the, as the vampires. And, um, and you look at this and you're like, why are we so obsessed with this? And many of the, many historians believe that really, this fascination with death started at this time. Yes, we've always been fascinated with what happens after death. Because it's really the one thing we don't know. I mean, you know, religious people can say they know what happens when you die. But we really don't know 100% what happens when a human dies, other than they're not here anymore. Um, so, the, so the question is, why is it that the art all of a sudden becomes so gruesome and and you know, skulls and, and all this stuff that they begin to put in there. And the black death has a lot to do with it. Um, now I'm not blaming the black death on, I'm not blaming Rob zombie on the black death. Um, <laughs> but, but I will say that someone who inspired him, who inspired him, who inspired him up the chain did have some kind of, um, uh, some some kind of uh, influence from this type of of thinking, this this fascination with death. Yeah, and I've I've wondered. Um, yeah, so it totally makes sense. There's kind of a, this this fascination with death and fear of the unknown that would drive some of the scientific advances that we could use to characterize the Renaissance and the scientific revolution, uh, kind of this desire to under, to understand the way the world works, understand why this thing happened. Um, I've also wondered psychologically if it kind of led to a bit of a sense of, you know, we survived the, the, the black death. We who survived the black death, did so because there's something superior about us, uh, whether it's our culture or our religious beliefs or our scientific inquisitiveness. Um, I've, I've always kind of thought of the, the survivors as being plagued by fear and doubt, but also enjoying some self-confidence and sure. possibly over, over self-confidence that kind of led them to kind of tying in some of the other kind of threads that you were playing with there, but, you know, going and, and, and lashing out maybe too strong a word, but pushing back against who the people that they saw as outsiders that they saw as, um, you know, they're inferior. They may have served the black death too, but you know, in the wake of the black death, you start to see the big push to, to get the, the Moors out of Spain. Sure. Um, and you start to see all the expansion that you're talking about around the world. And I can't help but think that some of that was fueled by a sense of Europeans' self-confidence and kind of arrogance that kind of came out of the idea that we survived. Therefore, our ideas were correct because we were yeah. spared. 
And, you know, ours, it's totally legit for us to go and impose our ideas on the rest of the world because, you know, we we did it. And yeah. sure, there were, you know, Africans and Asians that survived also. But you know what? We've, we've in larger numbers, in larger numbers. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we survived the crisis to end all crisis crises. Absolutely. And so we're going to just kind of do our thing. And, you know, everybody you know, better just deal with it. I, I think I think you have a I think you have a strong point there. Um, I I think that everything you said was true before the Black Death. The thinking wise, I think that you know, yes, the survivors of the Black Death, um, they were emboldened because they they either had been infected and survived, or they, in their thought, were not infected at all. They probably were and were just asymptomatic of it. Yeah. Um. Be- because we we do know that just because you um get exposed to any of these things doesn't mean you're actually going to come down with it. Now, what was the percentage of asymptomatic people from the Black Death? We don't know. We we have no clue. Um. Because we can't go back and tell whether they got it, were sick from it, survived it, versus they you know just didn't get it. But these people, again, you know, the strongest of the strongest basically survived. And they were, in many ways, given a protection from reoccurrence of this. Um, At least this particular strain for a long period of time. Uh, And so, yes, I think that they were emboldened over the next hundred years. They said, we survived this. Don't forget, not long after this, you see the fall of the classical world, which went all the way back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. I'm talking about Constantinople falling in the 1400s. That to them also emboldened Western Europe because now these outsiders have taken one of the two main cities in Christendom. I mean, there's Rome and there's Constantinople. And once Constantinople was no longer Constantinople, it was Istanbul. Um, to quote the song, mm-hmm. um, that was that was a major blow for these people, and and the Western Europeans were they were looking for a fight, and and obviously the response to that was the unification of Spain, the Reconquista. You've got um, the Colombian voyages getting ready to happen. Um, you know there was some movement towards possibly trying to go and retake Constantinople. Um, that was luckily abandoned because I think the Europeans would have figured out that was not a good idea. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean, they didn't do well in the Crusades. I don't think that the I, the best idea is to go attack the the Muslim armies or the well, they the Turkish armies, um, the the Muslim Turkish armies, because they would have they would have found that that was not a good idea. That it was going to end the same way that the Crusades ended for them. And, you know, we can we can sit here and say was Eurocentric idealism before the Black Death or after the Black Death. I think we could argue that it goes all the way back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. I think Europe has always felt that they're the center of the universe. And for most of our history, they were. I mean, let's just face it. For most of our history, um, especially if you're dealing with Western civilization and you're not counting China or India, they were the center of the 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 universe um, for for most of us, and um, I I think that 
yeah, I think the Black Death gave them a little shot in the arm. Sure, I, I think that between the Black Death, the Renaissance, um, the fact that, you know, all these countries are starting to unify that weren't already unified. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think that I think you could make the major argument that, yeah, they, they did get a little bit of um, I don't want to call it positive reinforcement, but they did get an injection of of courage and maybe um, I don't know the best word for it, maybe um, not ego. Well, ego. Um, they really did think that they were on the top of the world. And, and by the way, they proved it for another couple hundred years because they conquered an entire two new continents very easily, by the way. Um, you know, if you, it, it, realistically, the, the, the area that they had the hardest time with were with the more, with, were with the most primitive of the natives. Um, they took down the, the great native empires of the Aztecs, the Inca, the Maya, like that. I mean, it was, you know, within months they, they had conquered those areas. So by 1600, Europe was, I mean, they had a lot to be proud of. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you, I guess you could argue that, that, that there was a injection of, um, of pride or whatever you could use a hundred different words to, to, to basically, um, characterize that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, although they would um, be conveniently overlooking the fact that they utilized local native populations um, and worked with them in order to play on political instability yeah. in that area and yeah, and yeah. use yeah. their assistance to overthrow some Absolutely. Of the larger empires. Absolutely. Yeah, I, was, I always got a kick out of describing the uh, the fall of Tenochtitlan uh, in when you've got Cortez and his, you know, 500 conquistadors somehow conquering this, this, the, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world at that point. And I always like to frame it to students to say, yeah, you've got Cortez and you've got, you know, four or 500 conquistadors. And then you also have about 250,000 other pissed off um, yeah. subject people of the Aztec empire. That's yeah. where the bulk of the force <laughs> came from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, and, you know, that Cortez liked to say, yeah, it was just me and my buddies that, that me and my 500 men. Uh -huh. yeah. But yeah, and, conveniently. And even the, the yeah. and what's funny about that is even those 250,000 weren't enough. I mean, he had to send in, you know, a, 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 a committee to meet with the, the ruler that replaced Montezuma Yep. Um, and basically they gave them all smallpox. Um, right. so, I mean, even, even that, um, even that, I mean, you know, that just shows how they were crafty. They, they you know, they were, and, and, you know, yeah, they, they probably got a lot of that from, you know, their grandfathers and great grandfathers who had survived, uh, this particular event. Um, yeah, same thing with the ink. I mean, you know, Pizarro yep. goes in with, I can't remember how many men he had, but it was ridiculous. It was like 250 or 500 men, something stupid. Yeah, three something. Out of Wapa had like what? T and again, you never know if this is exactly how many they had. But the the thing was, I think he had 20,000 men um, or something ridiculous and, and, a, and an honor guard of 100. And mm -hmm. somehow he was able to be captured and taken back to, to the, the Incan capital um, as a prisoner. Now, I mean, you know, you have to be crafty and, and resourceful in order to to do something like that. And again, did they really have 20,000? I wasn't there. That's what they say. Um, 
but uh, and I would never accuse Francisco Pizarro of lying or exaggerating his military. Um, he's very objective. Prowess. Yeah. 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 Um, exactly. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where I think. You know, there were three main events at the at the end, at the, at the middle to the end of the 1300s, early 1400s that really made American the, the discovery of the Americas possible. And I always tell my students it's the Hundred Years War the Black Death, and, of course, the fall of Constantinople. Those three events led towards the the voyages of Columbus and, and, and his other counterparts. And, um, you know, can you argue one is more important than the other? Probably not, but in conjunction, all three had a, a, major, um, a major impact on that specific event. Um, obviously we're talking about the black death and all of what it, what it, um, in, uh, influenced, but if you want to add those other two things in there, the, the hundred years war and, and then, um, the fall of Constantinople, I mean, those three things combined really led to the, really the, the, uh, modernization of Europe. Um, the, the, you know, we really do when you when you split up the histories of of europe there's a reason why we basically consider the beginning of of early modern europe to be 1500 1600 and not 1300 or 1200 um so you know it it it, it does you know it, it does have a major influence on that yep and so it will be interesting to see uh just to kind of wrap things up a little bit yep. since we're starting to get a little bit late here but sure um, it will be interesting to see what COVID brings <laughs> because we've just spent an hour laying out a whole wide range of very broad uh, and important consequences that came out of the Black Death. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we don't. Oh, I was going to say my dream to just to compare COVID to, to the Black Death. My dream would be that this is what we're going to see. In relation to, um, you know, the the Colombian voyages of exploration that we're going to begin to see some more voyages. We haven't been to the moon in my lifetime. Um, I right. don't think we've been to the moon since, what, 72 or 74. Um, I believe I, I really do believe that after COVID calms down, I think that we're going to have Colombian voyages of exploration. Uh, this time, though, I think they may be privately funded. Um and I do believe that you're going to see in our lifetime, I think we're all young enough that we'll probably see it. I think we're going to see man on the moon again. Um, I'm not sold that we're going to Mars in my lifetime, but that's what they keep saying. Um, but, you know, again, <laughs> go back to four, go back to 1350 and tell people they'd sail across the, at that time, the great ocean, what we yep. know as the Atlantic ocean and they'd arrive here in the in the United States, those people would have looked at you like you were insane. Yep. So, you know, I, I do think that that's going to be the correlation when we look at these this thing. I, I think you're going to see that um, we're going to we're going to come out of this and we're going to begin to yearn to explore again. I, I You know, there's not much to explore here unless we, you know, go into the depths of the ocean. Um, but I do think we're going to do some more up there. And, and I think that's going to be a positive thing. I mean, I'm not going to Mars. Let me be clear on that. I'm staying right here. <laughs> Earth has oxygen. Earth has water. Earth mm -hmm. has beaches. Mars has um, composted 
food from from um if you ever seen that movie the mars movie with uh what's his name i'm not down for that yeah, i don't want to be left there yeah. either so <laughs> and everyone says it's a one-way trip and i don't want to be there but yeah but i think that's i think that's keep an eye on musk and the other guys i think that the the wealthy are going to begin to really push for not just a race for commercial space flight but i think you're going to see voyages of exploration and I'm, you know, at this point, again, I think we're only going to go to the moon. But, you know, again, if you told Christopher Columbus in 1475, um, you know, that he would never he would never cross the ocean. And he said, you know, he would. I think you'd laugh at him and think he was insane. And yet look what he did just 40 yep. years later. So, yep. So, uh, like you said, we'll check back in like five years or so and uh, get the three of us <laughs> back here on the phone again. And uh, see what uh, what has happened since then. <laughs> but I think for now, I th- now I think let's uh, you know I think we should call it a night. And okay. um, but uh, yeah, so uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us for uh, a couple episodes here, Scotty. Okay, it was great talking to you both. And thank you for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message at workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Jimmy Fennessy and Scotty Edler, I'm Rob Denning. Stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.